This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's wonderful to see you all here. I appreciate you for coming out. By the way, next week is Bring a Friend Week. All right? So, yeah, for sure. Next week is Bring a Friend Week. Whether you're on Zoom or you're in real life, feel free to bring a friend. If you're watching this on Torah Anytime, refer it to a friend. Okay. That's next week. This week is just a regular week. But no week is regular because you guys are amazing. Thank you all for coming out. I want to thank you. I want to thank the amazing staff over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for making this amazing lunch learn. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. And it's filled with incredible, amazing Torah content. Please feel free to peruse, download, listen, absorb, imbibe the great wisdom of the ages and become greater than you already are, which is debatable if that's even possible. But some say it is, because you're still alive, hence you can still climb higher and be better and greater. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this week is Parshas Lech Lecha. Okay? Lech Lecha has a lot, a lot going on. We've got the story of Avraham leaving his house, his father's home. We've got the story of him going down to Egypt, his wife getting kidnapped by the Pharaoh, who wants her for her incredible beauty. Sarah, of course, is one of the most beautiful women to have ever lived in this planet. Um, and um, there's also there's, there's the story of the four kings and the five kings and the fighting and the load. There's all kinds of stories going on. I really want to focus on one story primarily. It's a story that doesn't get an enormous amount of press coverage, but I feel like it's a really, really important story. And that is the story of Hagar. Okay? Who is Hagar? Let's turn to page... Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to say. Our learning today should be a zechus for the Refua Shalema of Baruch Chaim ben Michla. Okay? That is actually the husband of one of our regulars, and he's not doing so great. So again, the, um, the learning today should be a zechus for the Refua Shalema, a merit for the rapid recovery of Baruch Chaim ben Michla. And actually, just to get started on those zechusim, on those merits, I'll make a bracha, y'all say amen, and we'll just start those merits off going strong. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Sheakol Niyabit Varom. Okay, now, Hagar. What is the story of Hagar? Let's go to Genesis 16.1. Right, Parak Tes Zion Pasuk Aleph. Besarai Ashes Avram Lo Yaldalo, and Sarai, the wife of Avram, did not bear a child to him. Vila Shivcha Mitzris Ushma Hagar. And she had an Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. What is the backstory of this Hagar? Tells us the Pasuk, Shivcha Mitzris. She had an Egyptian uh, servant. Bas Paro Haisa. She was the daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the king of all of Egypt. This is the daughter of Pharaoh. Kishara Nisim Shana Asulasara. When he saw the incredible miracles, remember, he had kidnapped Sarah, attempting to, uh, to, to take her as, his, as his, another queen for him, another, another woman, because she was very beautiful. When that happened, it got to the point where Sarah, who had, was mistreated, was literally commanding an angel. The Medrash tells us there was an angel, 
And Sarah was saying, yeah, that guy was bad. He was, you know, he didn't treat me with respect. And boom, the angel would start. And that guy, 30% to this guy. That guy was a 7 in terms of his being a bad guy. That guy was a 4. And he was just watching how, like, Sarah was just proclaiming who people were in relation to her and how they treated her. And this angel was taking revenge on behalf of Sarah. And he saw these miracles, how the entire house was afflicted. And he realized that these were incredibly saintly and holy people. So what happened? When Pharaoh saw this, Omar, he said, It's better that my daughter should be a maidservant in this house of this great tzaddik, this great righteous man and righteous woman. Right? Because remember, Sarah had a higher level of prophetic ability than her husband. Okay? So this is a super, super house, right? So she, he says, I'd rather that my daughter should be a maidservant in the house of Sarah and Avram, rather, not be the boss of some house, be the princess that she is in my palace, and she'll eventually marry some other royal family, and she'll be a queen. I'd rather she be a maidservant to Avram than a queen in my house. What incredible incredible what we call Mesiras Nefesh, right? Mesiras Nefesh means such dedication, such sacrifice, right? Such incredible sacrifice that she was will- he's willing to give up his daughter and say, instead of you being a, 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 a princess in my house and eventually you'll marry some lord and some nobleman, I'd rather you even be a maidservant in the house of these great people. What went wrong? Why didn't Hagar make it? Hagar ends up, I'm going to get a little bit of spoiler alert, she ends up giving birth to a child with Avraham named Yishmael. And Yishmael doesn't make it into the Jewish people. They're close. They're this close. I don't know if you know this halacha. A Jew is not supposed to go into a church. We're not supposed to go into a church. We should not admire a church. Right? That is a house, at least for us, it's a whole debate whether it's considered idol worship for a non-Jew because they believe in the Trinity, which is God plus plus, right? They said to God, will you come to our event? He said, can I, can I bring a plus two? I've got a son and a Holy Ghost. They usually come along with me. You know what I'm saying? Can, can we do a plus two? <laughs> right? So, a... Um, anyway... Just trying to figure out in, in, in the camera this, this thing. Okay, here we go. It's a little bit straighter now. So, again, a Jew is not supposed to go into a, uh, a church. I'll tell you a little, uh, little story. When I was probably maybe 19 or 20 years old, I went on a kosher cruise. Okay? This is back, back, back in the day. So, I went with a family that I was very close with. And the cruise, it was like a whole thing. It was like a, you spend three days in the Conrad Hilton in Istanbul. It's a beautiful five-star hotel on the top of like a mountain overlooking all of Istanbul and the Basra Straits that separate between Asia and Europe. There's actually the city of Istanbul is half in Europe and half in Asia. And then we got on the boat and we did the whole, basically the whole northern Mediterranean. So like... Ephesus, Turkey, and the Greek islands, and, you know, we went to Rome, and Florence, and Malta, Nice, um, Monte Carlo, I didn't get off because it was on Shabbos, uh, 
Um, but eventually they made their way to Barcelona, where we spent three days at a hotel over there, and then we went back home. It's all glad kosher and everything. So, I'm trying to remember where. <laughs> what? Oh, there he goes. <laughs> See, Sarah knows the story. Okay, fine. We stopped off in Rome. Now, I, had, I have a fascination, you know, for architecture. I, I love architecture. I love beautiful architecture. And I love historic, historical things. I'm very into history. I have a lot of fascinations. I have no lack of fascinations. So we got there, and as you may well know, the Vatican is its own little tiny country inside of Rome, fully surrounded by Rome. I very much wanted to see the Sistine Chapel, but I knew that I'm not supposed to go into a church. So there was a couple who was having breakfast with me, and they were, they were a Jewish couple too, but they were like, yeah, I'm gonna, we're going to go in to see the Sistine Chapel. So... I, this is the, I had a camcorder. This is in the olden days, the camcorder. Remember the camcorder? That was the small little one, right? The one before that was the one you had to carry on your shoulder like a bazooka. You know what I'm saying? Like, hi, we're here to video the family outing with a bazooka, right? This was a little tiny camcorder you could hold in your hand. And I was like, I thought it was so cool, a new technology. I got this camcorder. So I gave it to them. I said, do me a favor. If you can just um, videotape. Some shots of the Sistine Chapel, you know, whatever. They said, fine. <laughs> what did they do? They went in, they turned it on, and then they forgot that they were wearing, they had it on their shoulder. So they come back and they give it to me, and they're like, oh, we're so sorry, we forgot. But then I actually turn on the tape, and I literally have like three hours of the floor of the Vatican as they're walking. <laughs> you see the Vatican floor. As they're walking, it just, it's like sliding back and forth on their shoulder, and it's in video mode, just videotaping the floor of the Vatican. God was saying to me, Laby, mm, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> Fair. Lesson learned. However, you are allowed to go into a mosque. Right? And on that trip, actually, in Istanbul, we went into some of the Grandest mosques in the world. The Hagia Sophia, which is a mosque that's built in the year 450 or so. Now, Islam didn't come around until the year 630. So it was built as a church first, but then the Muslims took it over and they made it into a huge mosque. So you're allowed to go to a mosque. Why are you allowed to go to a mosque? Because they don't serve idols. They have the same one God that we have. Right? This thing they call Allah. What does the word Allah mean? Allah means God. Same way we say God. They believe in the same God, the single God, the monotheistic God that created heavens and earth. A mosque is not a Vodazara at all. You do got to take off your shoes before you go in. There's always that concern that I'm going to come back and find that my Nikes are gone. You know what I'm saying? But you are allowed to go into a mosque. You're not allowed to go into a church. Hagar came so close. Hagar was the father, the mother of a nation, Yishmael. That comes so close, but they don't make it. Why don't they make it? There was such incredible Messiris Nefesh on the part of Paro. He's a king. And he says, I'm going to let my daughter be a servant in the house of Avram because I recognize their greatness rather than, than be a, a, a queen or a princess in her own palaces. How come it didn't work? And the answer is, such is what happens when the approach of the parent is 
I don't want to do the right thing, but I sure want my kids to do the right thing. I don't want to change my lifestyle, but I want my kids to be righteous. That's a problem. That's disingenuous. That's not authentic. And when that happens, it just doesn't work. There's a famous story. I think it was Ravchatsko Abramsky. It was one of the great leaders of Jewry in Israel. He was once taking a cab. And the cab driver, of course, is doing the customary running commentary. And he's saying to him, Rabbi, you won't believe it. I saw miracles. He says, really? Tell me the story. He says, me and my buddies, after, the, after we did our service in the army, we went traveling around the world. And we ended up in some rainforest in Costa Rica. And we're walking, it was four of us, we're walking through, we're hiking through the rainforest. We stop, we make a fire. We're starting to make ourselves dinner and suddenly, rapidly, with incredible rapidity, out of the brush, a boa constrictor comes out and starts wrapping itself around my friend. Now a boa constrictor, they don't kill with poison. They kill by wrapping like a coil around somebody until they just squeeze them until they choke them and crush them and then they eat them. A boa constrictor could be 30 feet long. And my friend is standing there, and we're trying to, like, hit the boa constrictor. But the boa constrictor is massive. It's unflinching. And it's just slowly coiling itself around my friend. And he's like, help me, save me. And we're trying. We're kicking it. Nothing's helping. Finally, he's, he's like, 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 we can't help you. He says, okay, I, I guess I'm, I'm going to die. And he just yells out, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elkeinu, Hashem Echad. As soon as he yells this out, the boa constrictor just starts uncoiling itself. Slides off of him and slides back into the underbrush. What a miracle! And he turns to the rabbi and he says, That friend of mine, by the way, He did a full repentance. He's a big tzaddik right now. Yeah, it really, you know, it was amazing. You should see him. He looks like you, Rabbi, with the long beard and the, and the coat. <laughs> the coat. So the Rabbi says, I, I don't understand something. What about you? You saw the miracle too. He says, yeah, but it, but it happened to my friend. It happened to my friend. You saw a miracle with your own eyes. How did you not change your life? It happened to my friend. Pharaoh saw miracles. He saw Sarah. He saw Abraham. He saw righteous people. He knew that they were right and that he was wrong. So much so that he wants his daughter to grow up in their home even as a maidservant rather than be a princess in his palace. But her, not me. How many parents... I used to give classes at one point. There was a, a program, um, a Hebrew school type of program. And it was for uh, non-Torah observant parents, shall we say, or families. Like a, a Sunday school. 
and I used to give classes, and we also had adult ed. There were classes for the parents too. I can't tell you, I can't tell you what, it was such a high percentage of parents that would drop their kids off, they would roll up to the circular driveway of the synagogue, drop their kids off, get out, no, no, you got to go to Hebrew school, and then literally they would zoom out of that parking lot lest the, the virus of the synagogue catch them, and where would they go? They had to come pick up their kids shortly. They would just go to the Starbucks, down the, like literally go to the Starbucks down the block, and just sit in Starbucks and talk nonsense to the other people, their other parents. Like it was literally like, so all the parents drop off their kids, run away, right? Lest the contagion of the synagogue grab them and latch onto them, drive down the block, sit in Starbucks for two hours talking about literally nothing, and then come back and pick up their kids. How is Hebrew school, honey? Ugh, I hate going to Hebrew school. I can't imagine why. Why do you hate going to Hebrew school? Ugh, it's so boring. Well, you know what? My parents made me go to Hebrew school, and you're going to go to Hebrew school too. Is it a little surprised that it, it isn't translating? Do you know that of all the religions in America, unfortunately, Jews are the, are the most disconnected? The highest percentage of Jews... Young Jews say they want nothing to do with their religion. When we want our children to go to services, but we don't want to go. When we want our children to go to Hebrew school, but we don't want to go. And there's a class available for you, Mom. There's a class available for you, Dad. Come on in. You're sending me to school. Come on in. No, 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 no. I'm going to go to Starbucks. My daughter should be in the house of Avram. Me, I'm going to stay here in Egypt and do my thing. I'm going to continue living my immoral life that Egypt was so well known for. Is it any surprise that it doesn't work? Is it any surprise that unfortunately, even though it looks like such sacrifice, it sadly doesn't work? When we dive in in the morning, the prayer of the Torah, what do we say? We should be, and our children should be, and the children of all the Jewish people should be, we should know your name, we should learn your Torah for its own sake. It all starts with us. And we should be. If we are, then then our children will be. And if our children will be, God willing, will have a positive effect. It should be, have an effect on all of the children of Israel. But it all starts with us. The minute where the person says, I want my kid to go learn, but my kid never sees me learning. I want my kid to go daven, but my kid doesn't see me go to daven. Not happening. Okay, that's step number one. Now we're just getting a picture of who Hagar is. Step number two. So Sarai says to Avram, again, now we're back in the, in the text, in chapter 16. So Sarai has no children. <clears throat> she says to Avram, look, Hashem has held me back from giving birth. I, I would like you to consort with my maidservant. Perhaps I will be built up through her. I want you to have a child. So I want you to consort with my maidservant, and hopefully you'll be able to have a child through her. And Avram heeded the voice of Sarai. So, Sarai, Avram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her maidservant, after ten years of Avram's dwelling in the land of Canaan, 
and gave her to Avram, her husband. Again, Sarai, this is all initiated by Sarai. It's not initiated by Avram. It's initiated by the Sarai. Sarai took her servant and gave her to Avram, her husband, to him as a wife. He consorted with Sarai, with, with Hagar, sorry, and she conceived. The Medrash tells us she conceived from her very first encounter with Avram. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was lowered in her esteem. So Sarai says to Avram, the outrage against me is due to you. It was I who gave my maidservant into your bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became lowered in her esteem. Let Hashem judge between me and you. Avram says to Sarai, Behold, your maidservant is in your hands. Do as you see fit. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, so she fled from the home. Somehow, Sarai being one of the seven prophetesses, being the first of the matriarchs, I don't see her as the kind that's yelling at her maidservant. And I definitely don't see her the kind that's beating her maidservant. So what, what, exactly was it, what, what exactly went down here? I feel it's very important to talk about because I was, I was studying with my partner on Tuesday night and he said, I said, what, what should we talk about? And he said, well, there's a lot of things to talk about. And he listed a couple things in the Parsha. And one of them was Sarah's mistreatment of her servant. I said, okay, we're going to talk about that. Let's talk about that a little. There was a man who lived in the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is not someplace you want your children to live. You know what I'm saying? It's a lawless land. It's dangerous. Poverty, violence in every corner. It's a, it's a, it's a, a pretty crazy place to live. And he dreams of moving to America. And he does it the right way. He applies for citizenship. And he's in the lottery system. And somehow, eventually, he ends up getting picked. He applies every year. He gets picked. He's thrilled. He gets all his documents together. And he goes through the citizenship test. He does everything he's supposed to do. And eventually, he comes to America. And he comes out into America. Wow! The streets, the clean streets... Shining, pristine, no crime. All the streets are clear. Oh, wait, that was 10 years ago. This story took place 10 years ago. (laughs) He sees somebody taking a brick and smashing open a cab window and grabbing money out. He's like, oh, I feel like a home. No. (laughs) He walks into a CVS and people are just pulling stuff off the shelves and walking out. He's like, even in Congo, we don't do this. Okay. But then they take him to this... He, he's, he's, he's in this hotel. And then he says, I'm going to take a walk. And he's walking past this building. And he's very curious. It's a big building, a standalone building. He's like, what's going on in here? He opens up the door, and he can't believe his eyes. Slave labor is going on in America. Like, just right inside the door. People are being forced to, to pick up all kinds of heavy things and schlep them all over the place and, 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 and they're being forced to run and people are sitting there, they're, mamish, they're working so hard and there's people behind them saying, faster, go faster, you know, pick up more. It's like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize they have slavery in America too. So he asks somebody, what's going on over here? And what do they say? It's a gym. <laughs> it's a planet fitness. And you have the trainer saying, come on, man, you can pick up more, right? And the other guy saying, 
You know, let's go, guys. Let's go. Pick up the pace. Come on. We're running today. We're running today. Let's pick up the pace, girls. Let's be like... <laughs> it's not a slave labor camp. People signed up. They paid money for this. They paid money for this. It all depends whether or not you're being slave-driven or you're being given a service that you'll pay for. It depends on how you see how you value something. If a doctor, if I go to a doctor and he starts poking me and prodding me and it's really painful, but I just sit there and I kind of grit it, you know, does it hurt now? No. <laughs> I'm a man. No. It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> right? But I, I, I take care. It's fine because the doctor, the doc, uh, he's doing a valuable service for me. But if somebody else started poking me and prodding me, I'd, I'd be in, in serious... Uh, we'd, we'd have an issue. We'd have an issue. person goes to physical therapy, right? And the physical therapist is bending and this, and it's, ah, it's, like, it's painful, but I'm sorry, man, I've got to just stretch it out a little... Okay, okay, good, good, no problem. You know, like, but anybody else stretching you out like that, it would be a torture chamber. It all depends on what... How you look at somebody is how you view what they're asking of you to do. And if it's the right kind of person, you'll do things that are very, very painful for them quickly and willingly. And if it's the wrong kind of person, anything they do is too much. The, imagine the following scenario. I'm trying to think of who's somebody who's got held in universal esteem. Hmm. Hmm? It's hard to come up with something. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Alrighty. <laughs> I mean, really, today, we live in such a uh, bifurcated world. Anybody I say it won't be relevant. Um, Michael Jordan. Yeah. Right, people like Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan comes to this school here, okay? And uh, he's taking a tour, and all the kids are googly-eyed. I mean, they don't really know Michael Jordan, because like, they didn't grow up in the 90s, but, uh, or they weren't alive in the 90s. But uh, whatever it is, the, the equivalent of that. Tom Brady is walking through the hallways over here. And again, I'm brought there's a lot of people in this, in this kid, my kid's school here that have no idea who Tom Brady is. But there would be a lot of kids who are like, oh my gosh, that's Tom Brady. <laughs> now imagine Tom Brady were to come to a kid and say, hey kid, can you make me a coffee? And the kid's like, for sure. He's like, no, no, but I have a very, very specific way I need you to make the coffee. Like, okay, no problem. What do you want? I want you to put in two teaspoons of taster's choice, but like level them off. Exact teaspoons, not heaping teaspoons, exact teaspoons. Then I want you to put in four teaspoons of sugar, but not leveled off. Heaping. That's how Tom Brady drinks his coffee. You guys knew that, right? I'm kidding. I have no idea how Tom Brady drinks his coffee. (laughs) Then, I want you to pour in a little bit of hot water, just a little bit, and start smashing it around until it gets light in color. You guys know what I'm talking about? With the coffee thing. I want you to smash it around until it gets like so light in color. It's almost like a tan, a light tan. Then you pour in the rest of the hot water. It makes the coffee more creamy. Can you do that for me? And the kid's like, <coughs> he can't even talk. He's like, absolutely. For sure, Tom Brady, no problem. For sure. Right? The kid runs off to make Tom Brady a coffee. Right? What if somebody, one of his friends says to him, hey man, can you uh, do me a favor and make me a coffee? Like, no, get it yourself. But even if he said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll make you a coffee. He's like, but in a very specific way, I want you to make the coffee. 
two tablespoons leveled, four tablespoons of sugar, heaping, to put a little bit of hot water, smash it around. He's like, dude, are you, are you out of your mind? I'll make you a coffee, but I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it like that. <laughs> the same exact request. There's literally no difference in the request. The only difference is who's asking. Right? <laughs> People often say, who's asking? Right? This is the famous phrase. People say, well, you know, do you want to do this and this? Who's asking? Right? If somebody great is asking of me something, no problem, I'll do it. Somebody not so great, <laughs> no thanks. Who's asking? Sarah, or at that time Sarai, didn't treat Hagar any differently. It's just that Hagar used to see herself as this maidservant, in which case she saw Sarai as her mistress. <coughs> now, she got pregnant from Avram. Avram was married to Sarai for decades. They didn't have any children. She gets pregnant from the first encounter. She says, gvirta <laughs> And her mistress was made light. Batekel means she was a... Oh, she's a nobody. Look at her. She's a nobody. Sarah comes in in the morning and says, can you make me a coffee? She's like, who's asking? You? No. Not you. I'm not making you a coffee. Right? So immediately, it was not that anything changed. It was that her own perception of what she deserved changed. She's like, I'm the big cheese right now. Because Avram got pregnant with me the first time we were connected and... Sarai, nah, I'm not making nothing for Sarai. How about you make me a coffee, darling? Right? So Sarai didn't change. Hugger changed in her mind. Which, by the way, is a very important concept. There's like, do you know what dis- disappointment is? Disappointment is expectation minus reality. Right? Again, disappointment equals, it's a formula, expectation minus reality. If you expect this, and you only get this, that is your full measure of disappointment. If you expect nothing, and you get more than nothing, then not only are you not disappointed, you're uber thrilled. You're even, some would say, grateful. Right? Because you're getting more than you expected. So, in this case, Sarai and Avram, Sarai didn't change, but Hagar did. The esteem that we place on people determines our interactions with them. And it's a really important thing. If you, people who get angry at traffic, what is that a sign? People who... <laughs> Uh-oh. I saw that look. <laughs> not you. Not you. Okay, good. <laughs> I, was worried, I was worried there. He's like, uh-oh. Whatever comes out of his mouth next refers to you. <laughs> Often, it means that you have an inflated sense of ego, inflated sense of worth. Like, why are all these little ants blocking my way? If they're just as important as you, if not more important, then they have every right to be on the road just like you do. Right? But it's like, there's like an ego over here. Right? The way you interact with people is going to literally color all your interactions with them. So... It's important for us to see, if we get angry with people on a regular basis, it may not be because of anything that they're doing. It just means, that, how do we look at them? How are we viewing them? If we viewed them as someone valuable, 
I view the doctor as valuable, I'll do whatever he asks of me. If I view somebody else as valuable, I'll do whatever they ask of me. And with gladness and with joy, sure, I'm honored, thank you. But if I see them as, then my interactions will indicate that as much as well. What do you see as valuable? Do you want to go to davening? Or do you have to go to davening? If you want to go to davening, the way you go about it is very different. You're excited. Ah, I'm going right now. I'm going to go to davening now, okay? I'm really... You walk out of the house with a pep in your step. If you don't want to go to davening, I have to go to davening. You'll schlep out, you'll be late. Do you want to get the door for your wife? Or do you have to get the door for your wife? Okay. Next idea. So what happens? So she runs away. Okay? She runs away. And an angel of Hashem finds her by a spring of water on the road by Midbar Milva Desert. Desert al ha'ayin b'derech shore on the spring that is on the way to shore. By Yomar, and the angel says to her, Hagar shifchas Sarai, Hagar, the maidservant of Sarai, Amy's at bus. Where are you coming from? Vanatelchi, and where are you going? Like, hey, I see you here stumbling around in the desert. Where are you coming from, and where are you going? What's what's your game plan? Okay, the angel basically says, to her, What's your game plan? Batomer, and she says, Mipne Sarai Givirti Anochi Barachas. I'm running away from Sarai, my mistress. And here's something very fascinating. At this point in the story, is she still a regular servant of Sarai? No. Okay? She's not. We see this because it's said already in Pasuk. Sorry. <coughs> yeah. Batikah Sari, Ashes of Ramas, Hagar Mitris, and Sari took Hagar the, the Egyptian, Shifchas her maidservant, after ten years. Batitaino Salah Avram Isha, Loli Isha, and she gave her to Avram as a wife. Okay? Once this happened, she already was not, it wasn't like she was sweeping the floor in the kitchen anymore. Now, again, anything Sari asked of her. Now that Sarai, in her mind, is so little and she's so great, anything Sarai said to her, can you pass me the sugar? No, get the sugar yourself, right? So she had already, at this point, because she saw Sarai as invaluable, that's why she was treating Sarai with disrespect, which is why Sarai says to Avram, what's going on? Avram says, look, interact with her as you see fit, and she deals with her in the appropriate way, which again, with Hagar's inflated sense of worth right now, is not appropriate, and she runs away. The angel calls her something she's not. The angel says, Hagar, the servant of Sarai, what are you doing here? And what does she respond? She responds, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. Which is very interesting. There's a, a, a Gemara in Tractate Baba Kama. It's on page 1... It's on page 92b. Okay? It says, if someone calls you a donkey, put a saddle on your back. Right? Now, it's not literal. It's funny, because in Israel, actually, 
You know, in America, we don't really call people donkeys much. But in, unless, unless they're a Democrat. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we call Republicans elephants. No. In Israel, though, actually calling somebody a chamar is a, a common form of, you know, making fun of somebody. Ma'ad chamor, you know, you're a donkey. So what does the Gemara represent, what does the Gemara recommend you do if you're being called a donkey? Put a saddle on your back. Does this mean, number one, that you should turn the other cheek? No, that's not what it means, right? There's a Christian concept called turn the other cheek. If someone slaps you in the face, give them a fresh cheek on the other side. Here you go. You got me here? Have a shot at this one. That's not what this is. This is much more about how you see yourself than it is about how the other person should interact with you. Turning the other cheek tells you the other guy, he can give you one more slap. Right? That's not a Jewish perspective. You don't say, if someone's in the middle of beating you up, say, here, I'll take some more. Thank you, I'll have another. You know? That's not a Jewish concept, right? The turning the other cheek. This is a question of how you react when someone's making fun of you. Do you get all upset and try to make fun of them? Or do you roll with it? I tell this to my kids all the time, right? Someone in school calls you a loser, right? So what do you say? Oh, I'm not a loser, you're a loser. No, 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 you're a loser because you did this. Uh, no, you're a loser. I try to tell my kids, and this is literally advice I've given to my children. Someone calls you a loser, like, yeah, I know, right? It's so crazy, I'm such a loser. <laughs> <laughs> it takes the wind out of your, your accuser, right? They're trying to get you all worked up. They're trying to make you feel bad, and instead, you're just like, you're like you roll with it. Oh, I can't, you, I can't believe you're wearing that. It looks so stupid. I'm like, I know. I was looking in the mirror this morning. I'm like, this looks so stupid. I probably shouldn't wear it. But then I was like, maybe not. I'm like, okay, thank you for affirming it. It really is stupid. <laughs> thank you. You be that guy who rolls with it when people offend you. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to stop offending you. Because you're untouchable. Okay? Someone calls you a donkey, you put a saddle on your back. You're like, he calls you, oh, you're such a donkey. I know. (laughs) You just don't let it get to you. Okay? Here, fascinating little situation. Hagar, the way I want to understand it, at first she was ego-driven. Right? She's got her ego in full-blown ego mode. She's looking down at Sarah. She sees Sarah as less than, because Sarah didn't get pregnant and she did. So she starts off in full-blown ego mode. But you know what happens? You run away from home. Suddenly you're by yourself for a little while. And when you're by yourself, see today, if you're by yourself, what do you do? You put your headphones in and you turn on a podcast or you listen to music. Unfortunately. In those days, when you start stumbling around alone by yourself in the desert, you start reflecting a little bit. And a little bit sharper understanding, a little bit bigger of a grasp of reality comes upon you. I believe that when Sarah was out there, sorry, when Hagar was out there, you get a little humbled. It's not a bad thing. Fine, you're you're having problems at the house? Go meditate a little bit. If you ever tried literally just like going to a quiet place and just meditating, it's so centering. It brings you back to who you are. It gives you a deeper perspective. Like, really, just, just, just go to a, a pond, a lake, and sit by the side of the lake, and don't do anything other than think. Like, don't do anything. Leave your phone in the car. 
you start coming more in touch with who you are and what is right, what isn't right. So she's stumbling along in the desert and there's a little bit of a new hugger now. What does she say when the angel calls her the servant of Sarah? She says, you're right, I'm running from my mistress Sarah. She's become a little bit more humbled. Okay? Now, by the way, interestingly, what happens? She goes back to the house, she gives birth, and once again, the cycle plays itself all over again. What does this tell us? When you get away and you meditate, often you come to a bigger recognition of who you are. When you go back to that house, all the stuff starts coming up. Someone here was talking about Thanksgiving before, right? Thanksgiving dinner is a dangerous, dangerous time in America. Right? And I'm not talking about from calories. And by the way, for the record, <laughs> go get your kosher turkey now. Yeah. If you're planning on making a turkey. There's going to be a shortage. This, this year is going to be, I mean, yeah, whatever. Supply shocks. I mean, I was just, literally I was reading an article this morning about how like, I mean, there's going to be a lack of crab legs. But that's not, hopefully that shouldn't be affecting anybody. And I'm not even sure if you buy, if, you, if you're a turkey person. You know, like, when I grew up, most of the, a lot of times the supermarkets would give you like a free turkey if you bought a certain amount of groceries. First of all, that ain't happening this year. There will be no free turkeys this year, no matter how much you spend at Costco or whatever, right? But I remember my mother, we didn't have, we didn't have turkey on, on Thanksgiving dinner, but that was the time they were giving out free turkeys, right? So my mother would definitely make sure to get herself a free kosher turkey. And we would serve it usually on Shabbos after Thanksgiving because our Thanksgiving dinner is like you said, it's Shabbos dinner every week. It's Thanksgiving dinner. But um, there might be a, a real... We're, we're going to see some interesting things probably in, in terms of uh, the menu items this year. But forgetting about that, that, when people come together, and it's not only Thanksgiving, it can be, unfortunately, for a Pesach Seder. It can be the same thing for Hanukkah. You have these moments when family comes back together and suddenly that just seems to dredge up all the stuff. And especially, unfortunately, when people come back to the home they grew up in, right? The home people grew up in, the, the physical home you grew up in, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of memories there. There was good experiences, there was tough, tough experiences. There's that sister that always used to pick on you, and, and you always felt it was unfair, and the other sister, whatever. And all that stuff, when you, when you literally, when you're in... They, they've actually done studies where like, when people walk into their childhood home, you can see like spikes. Sometimes a person have a great experience growing up, they can come into their home and like, there's like a calming effect, just walking into their house. And it's just like, oh, I'm home. No matter where, you may be married for 20 years, you have your own children, you're living in, you know, a thousand miles away, but you just walk back into your home and it's like, there's like a sense of safety, right? It's like I just walk into my home and just everything's right with the world. There's that home smell. Every home has its own particular smell. And there's the couch that you spend so many hours laying in, reading, or whatever. There's just a certain sense of security. For a lot of people, going, going home comes with a lot of different emotions, a lot of different stressors, a lot of different things. So like, we have to be aware of that before we go back or before we have everybody over for a big family meal. It's important to like, make sure that everyone's thinking about that and saying, I know this is what's going to happen. I know I'm going to feel these emotions when I get there. Hagar goes back to the house, and there again, she's seeing Sarai. Once again, she starts with this whole thing, and when Yishmael is born, she's trying to get her son to basically kill off Yitzchak at one later point, which was, you know, not, not for right now. But she's trying to get her son to kill off Yitzchak so she'll be the sole inheritor of Avram and his fortune, right? It doesn't work out for long term, but for that little moment when she's out there in the desert all by herself, 
she comes to a, a little bit greater of a recognition, and she's able to just, just roll with things. Just roll with things. Someone calls you a donkey, put a saddle on your back. Someone says, oh, you're the servant of, of, of Sarai. She says, yes, I'm running from Sarai, my mistress. Being able to run, run with things. There was a, uh, a man who lived in Yerushalayim, who they used to call Rabshabsai Savlan. Okay, Rabshabsi Savlan. Savlan is someone who can tolerate, can handle, can deal with difficulties and stressors and even insults and just just handle it. They say over, Rav Shabsi was a, he was a very special man. And one year before Pesach, he worked really hard. He wanted to set up the whole table and everything should be beautiful. Obviously, we all want to have a beautiful Pesach Seder. But it actually says on Allah that when you come home from Shul, right away, you're supposed to start the Seder right away. Right? So it's actually a halacha in, in Jewish law, because you don't want the kids to fall asleep. So he really spent the day and the afternoon, he had his kids, they were sleeping, whatever, he wanted them so they should be awake for the Seder. He spent the whole afternoon setting the table beautifully, and they had very few dishes, they were not a very wealthy family, they didn't have, but they used the best of their best, which is what you're supposed to do. I have a brother-in-law who uses, he has a special kiddush cup that he only uses for his Seder. You know what I'm saying? It's like a beautiful, beautiful, probably nicer than his regular Kiddush cup because he wants to use the best of the best. That's what you're supposed to use for your Seder. So he set up the table with the best of what they had. They have one crystal decanter, some plates that weren't all matching, whatever it is. But he puts out all the food. He puts out the matzah. He puts out the wine, which is very expensive. They didn't have access to a lot of wine. He puts out the cups. He puts out everything. Okay. He goes to Shul. He's excited. He's going to come home. They're going to start the Seder. The table is set beautifully. By the way, there's a family here in town who has their Pesach Seder table set three weeks in advance. <laughs> no kidding. It's covered. They cover it with like a plastic tablecloth so it shouldn't get dusty, right? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> you, we're just getting ready. We're just getting ready. You know what I'm saying? Three? I'm not kidding. You also do that three weeks in advance? About. About. Wow, yeah. Three weeks in advance. Anyway, so this guy... He goes to Shul, he's really, Rabshapsi, he goes to Shul, he's really excited. His wife is also really excited. She had been working very hard as well. She had been working hard, cleaning the house and all that. And she decides, I want to just sit by the table a little bit and enjoy. My husband's in Shul, she lights the candles, she sits by the table, and she's just kind of having a relaxed moment, looking at the beautiful table, hearing the kids playing, and she just knows that soon they're going to start the, the, uh, the meal. As she's getting up, she wants to go to get something from the kitchen. The tablecloth is a little bit long, and by mistake she steps on the tablecloth with one foot, and then the other foot gets pulled behind it, and ay ay ay, she pulls on the tablecloth. She ends up falling on the ground and pulling the tablecloth with her, and the whole thing falls on the ground. We're talking about the matzahs, the only crystal decanter they own, the wine, the priceless wine, the, 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 the haggadahs, the salt water, <laughs> the matzahs, the matzahs were so hard to have, you know, the shlame and the full ones. And right then, right then her husband walks in. And he, of course, she's, she's mortified. And what does she say? Why do you leave the tablecloth so long at the end? Now, of course, that's not necessarily a, uh, a, a great point, 
right? It's a disaster. But what does he come? He comes running and he says, I'm so sorry. It's all my fault. It's all my fault. I promise you I'll be try to be more careful in the future. What an amazing person. Right? That's that's the ultimate, the epitome level. To be able to be on point all the time. People are going to say things to you that are hurtful. And especially when they're hurt people. Because what do hurt people do? Hurt people hurt people, right? You guys, I'm sure, have heard that one. Hurt people hurt people. There's that one family member at the Thanksgiving dinner, or whatever it is, who's at the Shabbos table, at the Pesach Seder, who's always criticizing. The soup is never hot enough. Or the... uh, the brisket's just not made the way my mother used to make it. You know? There we go. There we go. You know that. Just know this much, though. Just know this much. People who are thrilled with life are not complaining all the time about little details. Right? Be bigger. Understand where people are coming from. If someone calls you a donkey, put a saddle on your back. Roll with it. Someone says to you, Hey, servant of Sarah, Yes, I'm going to. I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah. There's a little moment there where Hugger gets it right. Again, later she loses it again. But it's a fascinating thing that we see, and that and that's why Avram takes her back. Because for that moment, she was out in the desert. She took the time. Again, when we do that, when we take the time to go out into the wilderness and to meditate and to really think about where we are and what's our life and what are we doing, we end up really humbling ourselves. And it's because of that she merits to have a second chance. And she's able to go back to Avram's house and be there. Again, unfortunately, it doesn't last. Her ego gets back into her. She goes back to that parental home. All the, you know, the, the, the trauma starts coming up and she starts acting the wrong way again. But if we can do that, number one, be ready to roll with other people's inabilities to be their best selves. Just be ready to roll with it. To be humble. And most importantly, to take that time to go out into the wilderness and center ourselves. And if we do that, we'll become big, big people. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.